here at the uh, SACRA conference, the uh, wonderfully named uh, event uh, that means Society of American something, something, something. Mm -hmm. It's very long and wordy, but it's a great conference. And we're here doing uh, interviews with uh, authors who have recently published new books just to talk to them about uh, what they've been working on and, and, and what they've learned from it. I'm Barbara Brown Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of urban and environmental planning at the University of Virginia. Great, thank you for being here today. Um, well, you know, we just generally ask um, authors about how they came to the subject, you know. Um, I don't know if this was a dissertation or um, it was a, a project you began after grad school, um, but, you know, people deciding on a topic and deciding what to spend years and years uh, writing about, this question arises, like, how did you come to that and, right. and, and what brought you to this? Yeah. Um, I am, uh, I lovingly call myself a pracademic, so I'm a, um, a, a, an academic, but I also do community-engaged and sort of activist scholarship and I realized that uh, a lot of planning practice and even the sort of uh, language we were using in uh, design about um, working with uh, the public and in the, you know, in the civic realm uh, was limited and problematic and often still a story sort of told from a really um, white privileged place. And so I became interested in stories of communities that drove their own design processes. Often these are kind of tiny micro projects in the built world, but they ended up in, in many of these cases having larger systems change um, and vulnerable in, in terms of their, their low socioeconomic status and often also vulnerable to some urban stressor. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was really just interested in like how community members make change with little or no inherent power given to them in the built world. What, what does that really look like? Right. I think this is really interesting, and I should note that the, this is uh, Resilience for All, mm -hmm. Striving for Equity Through Community-Driven Design. Uh, it's published by Island Press. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really interesting because in, in urban history, um, most of it is a real downer. I mean, <laughs> it's about urban renewal and um, how terrible, uh -huh. you know, and misguided policies are and, you know, planning that runs roughshod over, you know, local communities that are less politically empowered. Um, so I think that it, I always, it always strikes me as interesting when I see an academic uh, work like this that's uh, not necessarily a declension narrative or not a tragic narrative, mm -hmm. right, uh, especially right. about urban history and planning. So um, what, what do you think about that? Well, it's interesting. So uh, I'd say that some of the history pieces, there's a little bit that's more contemporary, but but there's history in every chapter, and, and that often is a pretty depressing <laughs> part of the story. Um, but uh, because there's a you know reason that each community became vulnerable, and often it wasn't you know any decision of their own making, right? Um, but uh, but there's also a history. Uh, what I'm talking about here at this conference is is the history of community engaged and community driven design, which really uh, does have roots um, first in the sort of uh, backlashes to urban renewal that uh, Jane Jacobs and um, William White and uh, you know Kevin Lynch were uh, 
we're sort of helping to say like, hmm, there's something wrong here. And, you know, Jane, Jane Jacobs is writing Downtown is for the people before she writes Death and Life of Great American Cities. But, but she's also living in a community that was already gentrified and, um, right. and not really talking about issues of equity, not talking about issues of civil rights, which are coming up. Uh, in you know, in such uh, important ways through Brown versus Board of Education, and you know these these other really important pieces of, of uh, desegregation uh, policy and practice that are happening in cities, right? Um, and so uh, the piece I'm speaking about here is is really kind of trying to tell the story of the gaps in in the sort of broader design-driven culture. And uh, Whitney Young actually has this very famous speech. He's a um, He's a civil rights leader who is invited in 1968 to come to the National AIA meeting and uh, give give a sort of you know keynote speech, and he says, um, you know, as architects, you are not known, um, you know, for your contributions to this field. In fact, you are only known for your complete irrelevance and silence on these matters, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and through a bit of public shaming, but also through uh, the work of uh, Paul Davidoff's advocacy planning and Max Bond's first community design center that it's happening um, in, you know, um, in New York and uh, in Harlem. In in that same period, you you actually get this this uh, this switch of power, right? Like really figuring out how to get power out of the hands of uh, typical decision makers, um, which are often you know privileged white people not living in vulnerable communities and, and into the into the hands of um, people that have, are not seen to have technical knowledge and, and that sort of switch about um, in the understanding of who gets to make decisions and what knowledge qualifies you to make decisions is um, is kind of you know it's a it's an interesting story and it, of course there's a lot of grassroots activism that has to go into that but uh, but it's it's a bit of bit of happy history I suppose tell me something good yeah um, that's uh, not what historians do most of the time. <laughs> Um, so what does this look like? Like, it, we don't see planning uh, in all cases as this sort of top-down, mm-hmm. imperious imposition on communities. Mm-hmm. What does it look like? How do you, who do you talk to, and how do you find out about what, what do they do? Like, yeah. how, how do local people who are um, not wealthy, who maybe don't have huge amounts of education or yeah. social status or whatever, um, how do they get um, something? that's more palatable to mm-hmm. their interests and needs. Yeah. Um, often it required uh, pretty hardcore activism. So in the uh, civil rights movement, you see groups like CORE and um, and some of the other big civil rights organizations helping, uh, for instance, a group in Brooklyn. They did this thing called Operation Clean Sweep, where um, they, uh, they had noticed that in the Bed-Stuy neighborhood, you had trash pickup only a few days a week, um, even though it was a much more densely populated neighborhood than um, more affluent areas, less dense and having trash pickup every day. And in addition, of course, the trash pickup wasn't very good. So you'd you'd have pickup and there would still be a lot of trash in the streets. And so after trying to go through the sort of typical channels and and being continuously unheard um, and sort of only placated at best, they, um, they, you know, carried out an action where they... Uh, you know, had a community uh, grassroots group of residents go directly after the trash came um, (laughs) and pick up 
trash and it was like tons of trash that they then laid um, at the at the stairs, the, the you know, sort of public square steps of the Department of Sanitation. Wow. Um, and you know, thing, things like that right. became very, very visible. They were they were really good at engaging with media and you know other sort of resource mobilizers to get that those stories out. Uh-huh. Um, so sometimes it's it's crafty and um, and just really smart. Right after that, that's when you see Robert Kennedy going to Bed Stuy, being empowered by this this t- type of organizing. And starting funding at the federal level, CDCs that were, you know, community development corporations that were actually getting money into the hands of local residents to make their own decisions um, in a way that was autonomous from local government, right? Because if you're trying to be an advocate and you're relying on funding from your local government, that's going to make your position really (laughs) limited, really much harder to do. I mean, I feel like New York has a a, a rich history of uh, tenant organizing, community organizing, fairly organized like yeah. uh, communities that are like able to mobilize and speak mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. Um, maybe more than someplace like Atlanta or mm-hmm. Nashville or San Diego I don't know right yeah. Yeah. Um, so what does that look like now I mean when we look at things like lack of affordable housing mm-hmm. environmental racism gentrification like yeah. what kind of strategies are are working for mm-hmm. local communities now one of the most uh, empowering stories that I, I spoke about in the book is in the Culley neighborhood of Portland. Oh, yeah. Um, so um, most diverse neighborhood in Oregon, which I, apparently is not that hard to it's do. not saying much. Um, but. <laughs> but, in, but in, you know, racially and ethnically uh, diverse place and um, lots of, uh, you know, uh, Spanish-speaking moms coming in and feeling unseen and unheard and mm-hmm. as a part of their community. And so there's this program uh, they created what they called a, a rogue eco-district. So they have all of these groups working together, which in every city there, there are these crazy networks, right? It's not just one group. It's a constellation of groups working together to make change. Um, and so in the Coley neighborhood, this group called Living Coley, which is a, a sort of intentional network building uh, uh, organization or sort of you know, group of, of organizations starts a, a leadership program. So it's in it's in Spanish. It's uh, you know your your travel is paid for, your childcare is paid for, you're fed, um, you're paid for your time, so that you have you know you're valued right wow. for your wisdom. Um, and then it's a nine month program where you learn all about um, the sort of decision making bodies, how to give testimonials. You really become trained in sort of local activist. Um, skills right mm. that you that you might need to get your voice heard right. and these women then go on to do these incredible things in their neighborhood for instance they um, they were able to uh, get a, um, a local it's, it's also a, a neighborhood that's highly at risk of gentrification and they were able to stop the um, the sale of a, um, a mobile home community that uh, that was at risk of you know displacing lots and lots of people and instead uh, get the city, pressure the city to make it a cooperatively owned um, mobile home community where the residents not only get to stay, but they get to invest in their local community. I mean, phenomenal stuff. Just, um, right. you know, not even speaking the, the sort of dominant language spoken at, at City Hall, uh, but fully actualized in, in, in the skill sets they need uh, to, to be effective for themselves. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I just, it, it feels a lot of the time like these questions, these problems of housing and gentrification and so forth and displacement are just so inexorable and they're these sort of unstoppable economic and social and political forces um, that it, it, it 
it becomes very easy to lose sight of those kind of things. So um, when you've been talking about this book and speaking, you said you're a pracademic, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you're not just in the um, ivory tower. Um, how, how, how have people been receiving this? Mm -hmm. Like um, mm -hmm. when you reach out and talk about these stories and these strategies, what kind of response have you gotten? Yeah, one of the best questions that I don't yet have um, a robust answer to, but but it's helped me want to learn more, um, and you know, and uh, and hear, uh, listen more, is um, is thinking about communities that have absolutely no access to resources. Because what ends up happening in all of these stories is you have uh, communities. You know, I, I I look at a group in East Biloxi, um, a group in Denby, Detroit, um, a, a a group at the Cully neighborhood in in Portland, and also the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And these are these are uh, neighborhoods with with uh, limited amounts of resources, but they get access right to to enough resources through their collective activism um, to to make change. And so they they are drawing from sort of larger institutions, be there be there you know local universities or or um, or a foundation who you know um, is has a has a local footprint. Um, and so the question that that sort of I can't, I don't yet have the answer to is how do you move from a realm where a community has no access to those resources and what are the steps necessary besides making yourself more visible mm -hmm. um, to, to sort of gain those partners that, that are the resource mobilizers that, that help you bring in, um, you know, the, the tools you need to amplify voice. Yeah, what we often think of when we think of communities getting organized or speaking out is like going to a city hall meeting and a uh, city council meeting and yelling or protesting like um, that's like a really important step but it's not uh, it's not the whole enchilada right right yeah it is not the only step and certainly it, it requires um, you feeling uh, like there's any possibility of, of being heard um, it requires a sort of general legitimacy sure. of your work so in the Cully neighborhood one of the things they did after the training program is, is this group of, um, of local leaders and uh, you know resident leaders uh, worked with local youth and created a set of wayfinding signs and they had been doing these mm. um, community walks and biking for a long time they did not need the wayfinding signs but it was a way to um, Put a sort of physical embodiment of their presence and make them legible to the transportation entities that they were trying to sort of argue, um, you know, uh, for for resources to be put in an equitable way, but into their community to make it, you know, a safer place to um, to, you know, walk and, and bike. Um, so sometimes it's, it also seems to be uh, important that you. Um, that you make yourself legible to uh, to groups, mm. and that that's a that's a real challenge if you have you know no resources at all. But often young people also seem to they have maybe more hope and uh, a little bit uh, more patience. Uh, so sometimes if they can if they can get the sort of you know platform they need, they often are heard in, in ways that sometimes uh, adults are not. Patient young people. Okay, um, I, I I'm so glad Hopeful, you I'm maybe. glad you went there because that was the next thing I was going to ask. Um, right. um, it's just I feel like the younger generation that is coming up today has been raised in a atmosphere of severely diminished expectations. Mm -hmm. Right, like not to even believe that it's possible that things can change or you know this isn't the sort of revolution of rising expectations in the 1960s or something so but you're finding that young people actually are more have a more capacious sense of possibility 
Yeah, I, I think maybe they're just more creative um, and a little, you know, they're willing to think a bit more out, out of the box because they haven't yet been beaten down by the right, sort of, right. you know, realities yeah. of, um, of decision making. And, uh, and, then I, and I think people also have a different stance when they understand that this young person, this might be part of their education. Mm-hmm. People, you know, of all yeah, walks I mean, of life I seem think, to be willing to contribute to a young person's right. education. Right. And, uh, you know, there's sort of a generosity there, but there's also a reciprocity when a young person is able to express what they want, right? Um, so that seem, it seems like a different level of, of dialogue that's maybe just more generous on both sides. Um, but you do, uh, I work a lot with teenagers that, um, that have no reason to think that they will get hurt because they have, you know, been ignored for a lot of their lives. But for the most part, they, um, you know, uh, they, they might all be first generation students, but they want to go to college. Um, and they're, uh, and they're, yeah, they're willing, they're willing to try it on, you know, they're, they're willing to have the conversation and. Uh, and often that that makes much more change than us, you know, middle-aged people trying to do it. So this is going on in Charlottesville, where you teach? Yes, yeah, I've, I've got a long, long-term, really wonderful community partnership with um, some young leaders at um, Friendship Court, which is a community that's up for uh, redevelopment potentially, but uh, really needs to be done in a way that is uh, fully driven by uh, the residents that live there now um, so that it suits their needs there's a there's a no displacement commitment but um, but I've been working with them to be able to use their voice to actually drive the design decisions not just sort of you know fun exploratory design processes but informing decisions made to make sure that they have the best most equitable impact for the residents that live there yeah that's really that's really exciting to hear because um, it seems like um, we keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Um, you know, uh, in Atlanta, for instance, you might be familiar with the Beltline project, uh, where there's been a huge uh, rhetorical emphasis on um, inclusion and affordable housing and equity. And you know, even the creator of that project has now sort of. Um, you know, become disillusioned with what's happening. So, um, you know, it just seems like a lot of time there's just these like little crumbs that are thrown of like inclusionary zoning or setting aside a certain percentage of units as supposedly affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's nice to hear that it actually is um, it actually is inclusive and empowering. At least what's going on. It it takes uh, it takes a. Um you know, a, a lot of willing decision makers that are that are willing to sort of decenter themselves, and that's that's a hard one to ensure is going to happen all through a process. Right. But it seems like the decision makers in this particular process are are uh, enthusiastic about decentering their own knowledge and privileging the knowledge of the the people that actually live there now, which is great. Um, we still have a lot of work to do, so we'll see. Uh, but um, but it, I I have a lot of hope with this particular project. And, uh, and part of the, the hope there, and I think the important part about these, these projects across the board is that there needs to be accountability structures set up so that it's not just about inclusive processes, right? As you say, this rhetorical um, language and, and even sort of saying like, we've, we've heard you and thus it was inclusive. When in fact, it's, if it's not equitable in its outcomes, 
um, then you know that that's not that's not actually a, you know a very a, a very just process, and it's certainly not a just project. Um, and so yeah, to 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 not repeat what we've done in the past, I think we have to really reframe around um, out outputs and outcomes instead of just sort of inclusive processes because that's not enough language and process and, right you know right yeah. only goes so far yeah no this is really fantastic uh, it's nice to actually talk about something in urban history that's not uh, profoundly depressing <laughs> so um, we're glad that you're out there writing this work and doing this work in the community uh, the book is resilience for all striving for equity through community driven design out by Island Press. Is that mm -hmm. on the uh, bookshelves now? Uh, or? No, we'll be in February. Okay, well, yeah. we'll look for it and we'll definitely um, um, uh, try to bring attention to it um, um, through the podcast and, and the blog. And we really uh, thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about it. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right, thank you. So that was the first installment of our multi-part series uh, that we're going to be doing over the next month or so, where we talk with authors about um, their books that are coming out or recently published, uh, particularly about the built environment, planning, urban history, cities, the landscape, race, and so forth. Um, we're doing this series in collaboration with the Society of American City and Regional Planning Historians, or SACRA, and the blog Traffics of Meta. Um, we'd especially like to thank uh, Julian Chambliss and Walter Greeson, the other luminaries of SACRA, for um, proposing this idea and helping us make it happen, in some cases very directly uh, helping us do the interviews, as you'll see in the weeks to come. Naturally, we'd like to thank our production team of Nick Hoffman and KJ Shepard for all their help with Doom to Repeat over time um, and making the show what it is. Um, and finally, we'd like to thank Maurice Thompson uh, for helping with some very specific uh, and helpful advice um, on doing this episode. So, um, there are many more interviews to come, many really cool books to learn about, um, and it's been a, an educational experience for us, and we hope it will be for you as well. So, more to come. Stay tuned.